0: that I'm Slade Reinhardt. I'm the director of Grow and Connect Ministries here at Fellowship Bible Church, and it's my privilege to bring God's word to you today. If, yes, that's good and within reach, if uh, if you are visiting, uh, by the way, just to kind of explain the, the odd uh, time we're in right now, we don't have a lead pastor, so I'm filling in uh, with most of the pulpit duty, uh, but the Lord is still Lord over our church, and so we're, we're still going forward, and He's still working through us and moving among us. Uh, today, I'll be bringing the second message in a five-part sermon series on the book of 2 Peter. If you weren't here last week or you missed uh, last week's message, we do have CDs for sale in the foyer. No, I'm kidding. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that does, uh, it probably tells you my age, right, because who sells CDs anymore? <laughs> At least I didn't say tapes. <clears throat> My first sermon actually was recorded on a cassette tape, though, way back in the 20th century. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 16, and I'll be reading through verse 21. It'll also be on the screen if you want to follow along there or in, in your uh, Bibles that you have before you. Second Peter 1, 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him from the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. On May 29, 1947, (laughs) I should have waited for the uh, picture to show up first, shouldn't I? On May 29, 1947, the U.S. Army's radio station in Tokyo interrupted its regular broadcast with a frightening news bulletin. They reported that a 20-foot-tall sea monster had come out of Tokyo Bay and was making its way inland. For the next hour, a series of bulletins updated listeners on the progress of the Dragon as it proceeded downtown, derailing trains and damaging buildings. Troops were said to be battling it with flamethrowers, grenades, tear gas, and phosphorus bombs. Bullets were useless against the monster. Listeners were advised to barricade themselves indoors and to keep phone lines open and clear for emergency calls. Now, as you can imagine, both the local populace and the United States military personnel were disturbed and panicked by this broadcast, which, as it turns out, was intended to be a humorous part of this radio station's uh, fifth anniversary celebration. It is, uh, of course, it's easy to laugh at the gullibility of people who would really think that a 20-foot-tall sea monster was, was rampaging through uh, the streets of Tokyo, but uh, think for just a minute about why these people were fooled because as it turns out the military actually started mobilizing troops and uh, asking for extra weapons since they heard that bullets were useless against it but the reason the people were fooled by this ridiculous prank is because they believed this radio station to be a reliable source of information they trusted the messages that the station transmitted and so they acted accordingly Now you and I have trusted a message also, we have trusted in the message of Christ, we have trusted in the message that this humble carpenter uh, born in the Middle East is the savior of the world and that by his death and resurrection he can forgive our sins and bring us into everlasting life. And the world around us is working to convince us that we're being gullible, that, that we're acting on messages from an unreliable source. I titled this sermon, Trustworthy, because this passage of scripture is really an apologetic for the trustworthiness of the gospel message. Now, the first word, as you notice, the first word in verse 16 is the word, for. Now, what he's meaning by that word is you can substitute the word, because. Basically, what he's saying is, here's the reason or the ground for what I just said. Peter wanted believers to be diligent in pursuing Christ, as he mentioned in the previous section of Scripture, and he desperately wanted them to be reminded of the truths of Christ. Verse 15, for instance, he said, And I will make every effort so that after my departure, meaning after my death, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And then in verses 16 to 21, he tells us, Here's why this is so important. Here's why I'm so insistent that you pursue Christ. Here's why I'm so insistent that you continually be reminded of the things of Christ. It's necessary to be serious and diligent in your walk with the Lord. Because this message about Jesus is true. And that makes it the most important message in the universe. It makes it the message that we should all be giving our attention to. Peter wants to see believers grow in their faith and at the same time he wants to protect believers from the false teaching that he sees on the horizon even back then in the first century. And by providing the ground for the apostolic message of Christ, Peter is accomplishing both of those purposes at once. He's showing us why we should hold firmly to the message that we've received of Christ and he's giving us a basis for recognizing and knowing false teachers and guarding against their demonic doctrines. In this passage before us, Peter gives us two reasons why we can be absolutely certain that the message of Christ is true and therefore trustworthy. The first reason is this. The message of Christ is based on apostolic testimony. It's based on apostolic testimony. It's common for people to exaggerate or embellish the life story of someone they admire It's common for people to exaggerate or embellish the life story of of somebody that they admire. For instance, our first president, George Washington, was a great leader. He was was a man highly respected and highly loved, a man of strength, a man of courage, a man of wisdom. He played, obviously, a pivotal part in our war for independence and then in the Constitutional Convention and then, of course, served as our first president as well. Well, there was a biography written about Washington by a man named Mason Weems that told the famous story of the cherry tree. And in this story, when George Washington was, was George Washington was six years old, his father gave him the gift of a hatchet. And all of you who have had six-year-old boys know what happens when you give them a hatchet. So uh, George then used the hatchet to uh, damage or in some stories chop down completely his father's cherry tree. And when his father later confronted him about it, George is said to have responded by saying, I cannot tell a lie, it was I who chopped the tree. It's a touching story that illustrates the integrity and honesty of our first president, even at a young age. But as you also probably know, that story is completely made up. Mason Weems just made up that story because he was writing a book, mostly intended for school children to give them a, a role model to follow and they wanted to show that even from this young age George Washington was just a perfect role model of integrity and honesty. Now that story actually first appeared in 1806 just 7 years after Washington had died. So here less than a decade after Washington died there was a myth that was added to the story of George Washington. And by the time Second Peter was written Jesus had been dead for Decades. Of course, he rose again and ascended into heaven, but his, he was not on earth is, is the main point there. And Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wants to remind believers that the message of Jesus that they were pro- proclaiming was not built on made-up stories that were conco- concocted by zealous admirers. So look again with me at verses 16 to 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The gospel message about, The gospel message about Jesus does not come from cleverly devised myths. A myth is a legendary story about a supernatural being, event, or a cultural hero, such as George Washington in our case. And in the New Testament, myths are actually referred to five times and always negatively. Always, it is something not to be believed, not to be trusted in. As one scholar put it, myth is the means and mark of an alien proclamation. The living God does not need embellishments in order to bolster the credibility of his story or his identity. The stories about Jesus, his virgin birth, his perfect life, his miracles, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, all of those stories are real things that happened in real time. Peter and the other apostles were telling things that they literally witnessed and experienced. The message of Jesus is proclaimed by men who were eyewitnesses. ...of his majesty. It wasn't second-hand. It wasn't so-and-so told me about so-and-so... ...and I heard this, and this is what happened. It was directly, I saw this. I witnessed the majesty of Jesus Christ. In the opening of his gospel, the Apostle John said, "...we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." The apostles testified to the truth of the message of Christ... ...and their testimony is eyewitness testimony... They did not hear it secondhand, and they did not devise myths in order to build up or establish the identity of Jesus. They saw his glory and his majesty. And that firsthand experience of Jesus, the living Son of God, drove them to proclaim to everyone they could the message of Jesus. For instance, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were brought before the Jewish leaders, and they were told, strictly, do not teach about Jesus. And what did they say? We cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. They had seen it with their own eyes. They had heard it with their own ears. They had experienced firsthand the living reality of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so that all they could do is tell others about it. The Apostle John opened the le- his letter, First John, this way. That which was from the beginning, speaking of Christ, the word of God, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The message of Jesus is trustworthy because it is grounded in an apostolic testimony. Jesus really lived and Jesus really commanded a storm to stop. Jesus really multiplied bread and fish. Jesus really walked on water. These were not stories that were concocted in order to make us admire him or to teach some moral point. One of the dangers to the faith that occurs throughout the centuries is the attack on its historicity. But Christianity, more than any other religion, is built on historical events. Because if Jesus did not really perform miracles, and most importantly, if Jesus did not really rise from the dead, then our faith, the Bible itself says, is futile, it is useless. But praise God, it is not futile, because Jesus did perform miracles, and Jesus did rise from the dead, and he gave evidence for it. His miracles were witnessed by multitudes, and after his resurrection, he showed himself to his followers over a period of almost seven weeks, spending time with them, talking with them, letting them touch him, eating and drinking with them. He is indeed the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and our victorious Savior. Amen. In verse 16, Peter says, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think Peter has in mind both Jesus' earthly ministry as well as his second coming that is yet future. His incarnation when when he became a baby in the womb of Mary was his first coming, so that was when he came to earth. And speaking of that, that is a phrase you do not use of a normal person because none of us preexisted before we were in our mother's womb, right? So none of us can say, well, I came to earth in 1971. No, I was born. I came into existence then. But Jesus existed beforehand. So even that phrase is a reference to his deity. He came to earth to be born as a little baby. That was when he came the first time. And during his public ministry, he displayed power like no other man before or since, healing, performing signs and wonders. As I mentioned before, he commanded the weather, and he even commanded unclean spirits showing not only that he had power and authority over the natural world, but also power and authority over the supernatural world. And this phrase, the power and coming of our Lord, also points toward his second coming, when he will return in power and glory and set all things right. The example that Peter gives to confirm the truth of the message is his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's a specific episode that he refers to in this passage. Toward the end of his earthly ministry, as you know, Jesus at one point took Peter, James, and John, the, the three apostles that we often call his inner circle, because when he would retreat with, with fewer than the full number of apostles, it would be with those three. He took them and he led them up onto a mountain. And then Matthew 17, two, 17 two says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Jesus gave these apostles a partial glimpse of His divine glory, and I say partial glimpse because if He had unveiled His full glory, I think they would have been vaporized. I'm reminded of Exodus 33 when Moses told God, "I want to see Your glory," and uh, God said, "Well, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and you won't get to see My face, My full glory, because you would die. You will just see My back or or My partial glory." So I think that's the same kind of thing that was happening here. Jesus did not unveil His full glory. But he unveiled enough of his glory to demonstrate undeniably that he was indeed the divine son of God. Can you imagine what it must have been like? Can you imagine looking at someone whose face is shining like the sun? How many of you ever have tried to stare at the sun, see how long you can do it? Few of us have, right? Mostly men, a few of the ladies. (laughs) You can't do it for long, right? But can you imagine that intensity of light being emitted from a fellow human? I mean, it was, it was just undeniably something divine and supernatural going on here, and the apostles were witnessing it firsthand. Again, Peter, James, and John were not hearing about it, as the other apostles did. Peter is saying, I was there on the mountain. I saw his majesty unveiled right in front of me. And then in addition to that divine display of light, Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah who had been dead for centuries by this point, they appeared and they started having a conversation with him. In fact, the Bible says that they were talking about his soon departure from the earth. Moses and Elijah, both uh, authentic, authoritative prophets in God, talked to Jesus, again authenticating him as the divine Messiah. And then to top it off, It says, Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father when the Father said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God the Father spoke audibly from heaven and affirmed the life and ministry of his Son. He affirmed that Jesus was his Son. This is my beloved Son. He affirmed that the life and ministry of Jesus was perfect and good because he said, I am well pleased with this, my Son. and this is a neat thought since god the father acknowledged jesus excuse me acknowledged jesus as his beloved son in whom he takes pleasure that means that when you are united to christ in faith you can be assured that he regards you as a beloved child and that he takes pleasure in you as well god the father spoke audibly from heaven Just as he had voiced his pleasure with Jesus at his baptism, which was the beginning of his public ministry, he tells Christ now near the end of his public ministry once again that he is pleased with him. After quoting the Father's words on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter then reiterates that this testimony is the testimony of an eyewitness. He adds, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the mountain. Matthew 17, 6 says that when Peter, James, and John, who undoubtedly were already awestruck by Jesus' face shining like the sun, and now Peter and Elijah appearing. And then they, when they heard this voice, the Bible says that then they fell to the ground in terror because this was the very voice of the living God speaking to them. It wasn't a thundering that they heard and later interpreted to be perhaps the voice of God. They were literally hearing words they could understand in the voice of God speaking from heaven. And of course they felt terror for that because they knew they were having a divine encounter. You can be certain, you can be absolutely certain that Jesus is the Messiah because he displayed his divine glory and he was publicly affirmed by God the Father. And both of those facts were witnessed firsthand by the man writing this letter of 2nd Peter. This message about Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior, it is rooted in reality. It isn't a wish, it isn't a fable, it isn't a tale that someone made up. It is real and true. And by itself, it stands as a strong reason to believe in the reliability of the message of the apostles. Because they were eyewitnesses of his life, of his ministry, of his death, of his resurrection, and eventually of his ascension. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on to give us a second reason to trust the message of Christ. The message of Christ not only based on apostolic testimony, it's based on the scriptures. Centuries before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God told Israel that he was going to send his Messiah. He told Israel through the prophets that he would send a Savior who would save his people. God told Israel about Messiah's birth, about his life and ministry... For instance, in Isaiah 53, 5, it says, "...but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed." That means that the Messiah would suffer for someone else's sins, our sins, and that by his suffering, we would be healed from our sin sickness. And Jesus, of course, did suffer for the sins of others, and his death does indeed heal us from our sinfulness. In Micah 5, 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. And of course, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Messianic prophecies like this are found throughout the Old Testament. And because Jesus and only Jesus fulfills these prophecies, the Old Testament scriptures serve as a confirmation of the Messiahship, the divine sonship of Jesus Christ and the trustworthiness of the gospel. Look with me at verses 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp, this phrase that the ESV which is the the version i'm using and that's on the screen that the ESV translates as we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed it's somewhat difficult to understand <clears throat> and uh, that's why you'll see a variation a fairly wide variation in in uh, the different bible versions for instance then the, the uh, king james version says we have we have also a more sure word of prophecy the new american standard says we have the prophetic word made more sure And the net Bible says uh, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. Now it is possible that Peter is saying that the Old Testament scriptures were made more sure or they were more fully confirmed because Peter and James and John experienced this eyewitness uh, experience of his majesty. <clears throat> but I think that's highly unlikely because the Old Testament Scriptures were already uh, fully confirmed as authoritative. There was, you know, the Jews were not even questioning the authority of the Old Testament Scriptures. So I don't think that Peter's saying our experience confirmed that these are true. The, uh, other, another possibility is that uh, Peter is saying that the prophetic word... And by extension, therefore, the the entire scriptures is more reliable or is more sure than even a firsthand experience such as he and James and John had. But since James and John and Peter's firsthand experience of Christ and their testimony of it also became scripture, that doesn't seem likely either. So I, I really think that the Net Bible has the best understanding of this phrase. And Peter's saying that in addition to the apostolic testimony... We also have the reliable testimony of the scriptures. So I think what he's doing is giving us two reasons, both of which are, are valid and strong, not that one is, is confirming the other. The Old Testament tells us about the Messiah, as I mentioned. It tells us about it, uh, the, the prophecies uh, about the Messiah would be like, and those prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. So therefore, his life and ministry and his identity is confirmed by that prophetic word. And just to, confer, to uh, underscore how strong a witness this is, yes, okay, so to underscore just how strong a witness this is, Peter points out that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. A common misunderstanding of the Bible is that it was a collection of writings by men who thought deeply about God and they came up with insights and they wrote them down. Or that they, uh, these were men who had an experience with God and then they did their best to figure out what that experience meant and then, and then they, they wrote that down. Uh, God, uh, for instance, a prophet encounters God, God shows him some vision, he tries to figure out what it means and then, then he writes that down. But Peter is saying, no, that, that is completely wrong. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation You aren't reading somebody's educated guess about God's plans or God's character. In fact, Peter says that biblical prophecy never originates with man. It it didn't come about because men were saying, Okay, I really want to draw closer to God. I really want to know more about God. So I'm going to prophesy about him. I'm just going to come up with that myself. No, prophecy was never produced by the will of man. Which means that our faith does not rest on the insider wisdom of fallible men. Praise God for that. And I think it means that we can be certain that the scriptures are true because their source was not man. Their source was divine. The source of the scriptures, the ultimate author of the scriptures is the spirit himself. That's why he says men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These men wrote and spoke in their own individual styles and reflecting their own circumstances and their own life experiences. But what they wrote was exactly What God intended, because they were speaking from Him, not from their own will. They were carried along, they were guided or directed by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is giving us here is the doctrine of the supernatural superintendence of Scripture. How can we be sure that Moses or Daniel or Isaiah accurately wrote about the Messiah, accurately recorded their prophecies, accurately said what God did or what he wanted, and that we can be sure because the Holy Spirit oversaw what they wrote. The Holy Spirit was leading them, guiding them, carrying them along. Since Scripture's ultimate source is God himself, therefore we can be absolutely certain of its trustworthiness. And Scripture affirms that Jesus is the Messiah. Scripture affirms that he saves us from our sins. And Scripture affirms that one day he will return to this earth to make all things right. Right after Peter mentions that we have this reliable prophetic word, he adds that we will do well to pay attention to it, to this word, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. We will do well to pay attention to the prophetic word. It is a sure word of God and it gives us light like a lamp shining in a dark place. It gives us the light of God's truth to guide us through this dark world dominated by rebellion, idolatry, selfishness, lust, and greed. Uh, I think all of us in here were disturbed by the storming of the Capitol that happened earlier this week. And probably more disturbing was the fact that a lot of those people were either waving flags that said Jesus or wearing uh, shirts that said Jesus well, those people were not following the way of Jesus. Those people were not paying attention to the prophetic word. They were following the path of darkness, just giving vent to their frustration and anger. That is not the way of Christ, and I think we all recognize that. This letter begins, uh, excuse me, uh, so Peter is saying we need to pay attention to the prophetic word. So I guess the point about the, the capital storming I wanted to make is uh, wearing a t-shirt that says Jesus doesn't mean you're really following him, okay? Okay. Uh, People say things falsely about the Lord and people represent him falsely all the time. So what we need to pay attention to is the trustworthy testimony we have about him. But let me ask a more serious question, because I think we can all sit back and say, yeah, those guys were not paying attention to the prophetic word. They were not following the way of the Lord. Question is, are you paying attention to the prophetic word? Are you paying attention to God's word? Am I paying attention to God's word? And what does it mean to pay attention to God's word? What is Peter even talking about? Well, it's probably pretty obvious, but I'll go ahead and say that uh, I think he's talking about reading, studying, and meditating on God's word. Remember that the letter began by exhorting us to pursue godly qualities like self-control and virtue and steadfastness and love. And then after that, Peter said, I want you guys to be reminded Of the truths of Christ be reminded of these good things that the Lord would have us pursue and the scriptures do that the scriptures shape us to be more like Christ they reveal our sin they also hold forth the perfect ideal of Christ himself and they remind us of who he is and what he's done so you pay attention to the scriptures by interacting with the scriptures engaging with them reading them talking to other believers about them praying them now I will say I stand before you as a man who has failed at this more times than I can count. I have uh, committed to a reading plan and failed at it and recommitted to a reading plan and failed at it and recommitted to a reading plan and failed at it. To give you a uh, <clears throat> a good illustration of that, uh, last year sometime, yes, this is 21, right? Okay, so 2020. Yes, thank the Lord <laughs> it is 21. Last year sometime, I started on a reading plan that was uh, created by a Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McChain, and uh, it's, it's somewhat aggressive. It's like four chapters a day. To me, that's aggressive. <laughs> and uh, I use the YouVersion app. Hopefully, you guys are using that. It has all kinds of reading plans for you. So it keeps up, and it'll, you know, when you read it through, you check it off, and then it keeps up for you. And uh, as of yesterday, I am 147 readings behind. So... <clears throat> I know about failing in this area, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm right there with you. We're all prone to neglect God's Word, especially in this image, image-driven world we're uh, living in. But God is urging us to pay attention. Now, He isn't telling us how many chapters a day we need to read. In fact, He isn't necessarily saying you need to read every single day. What He is saying, though, that you need to pay attention to the revelation that I have given. So that does involve reading at some point. It does involve meditating. It does involve thinking about it and shaping your life by it. And by the way, the uh, I, something I was struck by just this morning as I was thinking about it, I like the tone that the Lord has used here because he says, uh, let's see, where is it? So verse 19, uh, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to to pay attention. Do you notice how that's not a scolding tone that doesn't it shouldn't feel like a scold, okay? This is not God, the schoolmaster, with his stick, striking your knuckles and saying, pay attention. He's saying, you know, you'll do well to pay attention to this, this revelation that I have given to you. For your good, for your blessing, for your enjoyment of your relationship with me. Our efforts to pay attention to the word of God are one of the means that God is using to more fully redeem us, to more fully shape us into the image of Christ. Now, since you and I do have free and easy access to the scriptures, I would encourage you to get on some kind of plan for reading the Word of God. Uh, really, here in the United States, uh, I think very few people would have any kind of excuse that would hold water. If you've never, for instance, if you've never read the Bible all the way through, let me just encourage you to, to set a plan to do that. And don't think that it has to be in a year. That for some reason, I don't know where that came, but everybody is always like, you got to read. No, don't worry about reading it through in a year. Make a two-year plan, a three-year plan, a five-year plan. Just start moving through the Word of God. Start reading the Word of God. You'll be shaped, you'll be blessed, and most of all, you'll draw closer to Him. And uh, by the way, if you do want any more ideas for ways to interact with the Word of God, feel free to contact me and I'll be happy to share some more ideas with you and commiserate with you on, on our failures. Uh, now, having said that, you know, I mentioned that this is not really a scolding tone. So, one thing I want to continually add uh, wh- whenever a passage of Scripture is giving us an exhortation or a command, because, okay, he said we should, do well to pay attention, so that's something we should do. That is a should, okay? That's, it is a good thing that we should be doing this. It is not a good thing. It's a bad thing if we were to neglect it. Uh, but I want to add that. Your standing with God as a beloved child is not based on how well you're doing at paying attention to God's word. There are more benefits and blessings than I could possibly name to reading and studying God's word, the most important of which is just drawing closer to the Lord himself. But if you, like me, have failed, if you are also 147 days behind in your reading plan Don't lose heart, don't be discouraged, don't give in to the devil's lies that now the Father is standing and looking at you, shaking his head in sad disappointment at your pitiful weakness and lack of commitment. No, God still loves you as a beloved child, still accepts you, and still wants the absolute best for you. He will not disown you or push you away. So if you've been neglecting to the Lord, excuse me, if you've been neglecting the Word of God, tell the Lord that. Ask Him to give you a renewed love for the Lord and then start again. Not in order to make yourself acceptable, of course, but to engage with this channel of grace that God uses to work his redemption in your life. So Peter says we need to pay attention to the prophetic word. And then he adds this interesting phrase, until, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So he says, you would do well to pay attention to this prophetic word as to a lamp shining in the darkness, until, what does he mean by that? Is there like a expiration date on the Bible we supposed to stop at some point well here's what he's saying that uh, he's really pointing toward the fact that there's a day coming when we will not be in a dark place Okay, there's a day coming when we are going to receive more light than even, even the scriptures give us because we are going to see truly the unveiled glory of the living Christ. The day will dawn, speaking of the return of Christ, the, the morning star, Jesus himself, will rise. He will come back to this earth and he will set everything right. He will establish his kingdom in perfection. <clears throat> Sin, sorrow, rebellion, all of these will be done away with. But until then, Peter says... Give attention to the light that God has given you in his scripture. It's a precursor to the, to the greater light that we'll experience at the second coming of Christ. So here's what I think God is telling us today. The message of Christ is true. The apostles and the scriptures confirm it. The gospel that is proclaimed in the New Testament is absolutely reliable. You can build your life on it. Your life on this earth and your life after death. To state it more personally, you can trust the message of Christ. The message of Jesus that was delivered by the apostles and predicted by the Old Testament is sure. No attack can break the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and the God-breathed testimony of the Old Testament scriptures. No scholar, no skeptic can take away the truth of the message of the good news of Jesus of Nazareth. So my encouragement is to center your life on this trustworthy word. Center your life on this life-giving message. Jesus, the Son of God, who is the Messiah, He died for your sins. He rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. He is Lord of all, and He gives forgiveness and life and adoption and union with Him to everyone who will trust in Him. Amen. There's a thousand different ways that you can apply this message to your life. I'll give you just a few suggestions. One I will encourage all of you to do is to thank the Lord that he has given us a sure and trustworthy message. Thank the Lord that he is true. We can rely on him. We can trust in him. No matter what else in life may be uncertain, he is absolutely certain. I don't know when the Lord will return, of course. But let's pretend for a minute it's centuries from now. I don't know if the United States of America will exist a hundred years from now, but I know the kingdom of God will exist. I know that Jesus will still be Lord and on the throne, regardless of what comes your way. Thank the Lord that he is true and trustworthy. You can also commit to reading God's word regularly. Again, you can choose a plan. You can talk to a friend. You can touch base with me. Choose a plan that will fit well with your life. Don't do something crazy like, okay, I'm going to read 20 chapters a day in the original Hebrew, man. I'm going to do this. <clears throat> don't set yourself up for failure. Set yourself up for success in that regard. And then finally, I would just encourage you to tell someone of something you learned from this passage today or something you were reminded of, something that encouraged you in your faith in Christ and in your walk with Him. Why don't we all stand, and I will close us in prayer. And as I do that, I'm going to ask our prayer team To come forward as always there'll be some people up here at the front of the stage who are ready and willing to pray with you to encourage you in any way to uh, talk to you about any needs that you might have and see how we might serve you lord god in the name of jesus christ your son your son that you affirmed as your beloved son with whom you are well pleased your son whom we are united to when we trust in him your Son, who is righteous and true and faithful and victorious. In his name, Lord, we come to you with gratitude in our hearts for all that you have done for us and that you continue doing. Thank you for your revelation. Thank you, Lord, for the certainty that you are our Lord and that our salvation is sure in you. God, I pray for your blessing on all of our brothers and sisters in Christ that have gathered here today, that are watching online. I pray for a special measure of grace that you would reveal to them more of your glory, that you would manifest your presence in a more tangible way to them. Bless your people, O God. Guide us to walk in your ways and to enjoy the fellowship of your presence. In your holy name,